complete. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the grace to set up an altar unto you in our hearts, that thereupon we might offer the sacrifices of love, of charity, of loyalty, of honor to you, Father. We pray that you help us to ever keep that flame burning in our hearts, that it may be fired by the voice of your word, by the sound of your voice through your scriptures and the grace that you give us in your church. Father, we pray that you help us prepare our hearts and prepare ourselves for the celebration of the incarnation of your son. That as we prepare for his first coming, we might also prepare for his second. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today is the first day in the new year of the church. You might be surprised, but the church keeps its own calendar, its own year. And it doesn't start on the 1st of January. It starts on Advent. For centuries in the calendar of the church, Advent has marked the start of its own new cycle. And what better way to mark the start of the year than by a season of meditation upon the sacred scriptures. We are a culture which turns its nose up at repetition. At the doing of something over and over again. We tell our, our, remember when I was a kid, I would say, I don't want to grow up to turn the same lever in the same factory for all of my days. I want to do something new. I want to do something great every day, something different. We are a culture which despises the mundane, the repeated. But the discipline of meditating on the scriptures necessitates that we be willing to engage in repetition. We must be willing to not only do the same thing over and over again, i.e. pray, read, ponder, pray, read, Ponder, but we must be willing to do these repetitive actions with the same texts over and over again. The scriptures do not always give up their riches easily, and thus an entire lifetime spent visiting and revisiting the same passage does not threaten to exhaust the wealth that that passage contains. In a soundbite world in which we are increasingly threatened, or that is, trained, to want everything instantly, and in succinct, tightly packaged bundles of two-minute videos, we may find that we need some retraining before we can sit quietly and attentively enough to hear God. Last night, we took the family to a musical concert of some Christmas carols. Um, The setting was uh, an older 
cathedral-looking church. The voices were in pitch. They were together. There was candles lit. It was a beautiful setting. Sat in front of us was a boy not much older than Eli. And he had his phone set to the brightest screen possible. And the whole time in the concert, he's scrolling that scroll of doom where you're just scrolling and scrolling through some app that I didn't recognize, whatever the cool kids are using these days. But the whole time, and then every now and then he would take a video and he would snap it and he would post it and he would proceed to continue to scroll. This is what we've become accustomed to. To not live the authentic life. To not, instead of sitting there and listening and enjoying the music, enjoying the experience, the boy, and I blame his parents, not the boy, has become accustomed to a stimulus and a fakeness where he's, he believes he's experienced the life if he's taken a picture or a video of it and posted it. And then he moves on. We've accustomed ourselves to just skim along the surface of things. Just like a stone, just skimming perpetually. Instead of letting that stone fall to the depths of the sea. See, hearing God speak is the point of our meditation upon Scripture, is it not? The Lord made it clear when He chastised the Pharisees for making loud prayers in the street corners. Performative piety is not what we are called to. When we snap a picture and say, oh, we've been praying this. We snap a picture, we make a video, we make a post, I've been reading this. We're not called to a performative piety, we're called to an authentic piety. We are not interested merely in knowing the contents of the Bible, though we are interested in that. We are interested in knowing God and being known by Him. And the thing about the Scriptures is that they are His very voice. We are not there to just study the content and understand the principles, although that is important. We are there to hear His voice. To hear His voice. But in order to hear Him speak, we will need to learn to meditate And pray upon his words. Prayer is the operation of the Holy Spirit upon humanity. Restoring all creation to the Father through Jesus Christ. In Romans 8 it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but we ourselves, which have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Thus, prayer is neither an esoteric skill to be individually mastered, nor a lonely soliloquy to a cold, white, emotionless heaven. Rather, prayer is a gift given by God through the Holy Spirit under the conditions of our humanity. This humanity having first been assumed by the Son. 
hallowed through its union with the divine nature, and then finally returned to God, redeemed under the work of the Son's resurrection, ascension, and glorification. When the Son gave us the template and sum of all prayer, He taught us to say, Our Father, not My Father. This is true whether we be in our own prayer closet or at prayer among a multitude of worshipers. By this we learn that prayer is first and foremost in common. To conceive the church as being fundamentally constituted as a company of voices, a community of prayer, before we even consider her hierarchy, her order, her polity, first as a company of voices in prayer is the most important contribution of Anglicanism to the church. The Book of Common Prayer is the charter and instrument of this conception. If we consider that gifts impose upon their recipients the response of thanks, Think about it. When mommy and daddy give you a dress or a shirt or a pair of trousers, they expect that you wear them. If I give my wife a piece of jewelry, I would expect that she would wear it. If she would give me a shirt, I would expect, she would expect that I would wear that shirt. Otherwise, the gift is in vain. And if prayer is a gift, then that gift imposes obligations. It means that you should wear it. Even when you don't want to. Even when you feel like you don't need to. Even when you're tired. For how insulting is it to the gift giver that they make a great sacrifice, send his own son, have him crucified, have him ascend in glory so that the gift of the Holy Spirit might be given to us so that we may pray to God. The gift of prayer imposes an obligation. Indeed, it imposes a bounden duty, as we say in our communion liturgy, our bounden duty to pray Every day, morning and evening. Prayer comes more easily when we come to realize that it is purer and truer the more we set aside our personal proclivities, our personal feelings, our self-absorption, and enter into not only the narrow way, of Jesus, that is to say, pray with his words, pray with his thoughts, but also join our voices with the company of heaven in all the prayers that the church has said for centuries. It has been said that the Book of Common Prayer is the Bible arranged for prayer. And so it demonstrably is, in which we will get into in one minute together with prayer stretching back into the history of the church, made hot by the breath 
of the saints. The same identical phrases said again and again, meditated upon day in and day out, hollow out. Do do the children know what it means to hollow out? To hollow out? Not halo, but hollow out. You ever been to an old cathedral and you walk the staircase up and you see this depression in every step where they've stepped before for centuries? Every step has hollowed, has carved out a pattern. And so it is when you repeat. So it is when you carve a statue. So it is when you do something over and over, when water runs over a stone. For hundreds of years, it creates a shape. A shape that is harder to change the more that water has rolled over it. When we pray and say the, the, and meditate on the scriptures over and over again, these scriptures, these prayers, then hollow out a shape in our soul. This, the integration of scripture with prayer in the common voice of the saints in communion, this I ask you now to consider as we start this Advent. Let us consider the collect for the day and unpack how Scripture is entwined in it, even the Scriptures that are read and appointed for today. First, the word collect. What is the word collect? Do the children know what the word collect is? What is the meaning of the word collect? Is it just a funny way of saying collect? Yes, Lavinia. It is a prayer, but it comes from the Latin collecta, which has been used since the 5th century to describe the gathering of the people together. Indeed, the gathering of the people together before the start of service. To collect them. And as we collect, we say a prayer together. Now, through the centuries, the church had accumulated many collects. In Latin, during the Reformation, Cranmer, the author of the prayer book, translated many of these collects into English and wrote some new ones. We start the church year with today's collect. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, etc. This beautiful and moving prayer was written specifically for the first edition of the prayer book in 1549. Its structure, its style, its contents reveal just how well Cranmer had mastered in English the grammatical structures of the traditional Latin collects. 
It is a most appropriate prayer with which to begin the Christian year, for it is addressed to the Father, it is centered upon the Lord, and looks for the direct help from the Holy Ghost. It takes specifics, guidance, and inspiration from the epistle we read today, and reminds us that we cannot properly celebrate the first advent of the Lord Jesus unless we are preparing for His coming as we read in the gospel. Advent calls us to consider both Jesus' first coming when he came in all humility to redeem us and his second coming when he will come in glory to be our judge. The interplay of these two advents permeates the advent collects. Almighty God, now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus came in great humility. What is that great humility? How did Jesus come in great humility? He emptied himself of his divinity, took on flesh. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey, a fowl. Of an ass. Now, donkeys are considered a funny creature, not just from the movie Shrek. Okay? Shrek did not invent the legend of the donkey. Donkeys are found in the works of Homer, of Aesop's fables, where they are generally portrayed as stupid, stubborn, servile beasts. They were often contrasted with horses, which were seen as powerful and beautiful. Aesop's fable, the ass in the lion's skin, represented... Was, was representative of 20 of his fables which showed donkeys as fools. Shakespeare himself popularized the word ass as an insult meaning stupid or clownish in reference to donkeys. In contrast to these works, donkeys were portrayed in biblical stories as symbols of service, of suffering, of peace, of humility. Stop it. Whatever way you cut it, these aren't the most these are not the most glorious, powerful, proud war creatures. This is, however, symbolic of how the Lord Jesus came to us in his first coming. But what about his second coming? It says in the collect that in the last day, prepare us, give us grace, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. So he rides in a donkey on his first coming. What does he ride on in his second coming? Do the children know what he rides on in his second coming? Do they know? Well, I'll tell you right now. 
<laughs> Chapter 19, book of Revelation, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a far cry from a donkey. A far cry from a humble, meek God-man. In his second coming, his vesture is dipped in blood. He feeds the flesh of his enemies to the clarion To the birds of prey, he will come in great glory, in a war horse, in robes, soaked in blood. The collect says, now in the time in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility on a donkey, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, On a horse, we may rise to life eternal. Give us grace in this time of the Lord's first advent that we may receive eternal life in his second advent, the prayer says. Give us grace now in the time of his first coming in humility that when he comes with power and wrath and glory, we might be ready to receive life eternal. A perfectly scriptural prayer. The grace that Cramer is teaching us to ask for in this life, during the age of this first advent, is the grace mentioned in our epistle. Our epistle says this, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. This is the time of the first advent. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on The armor of light. The colic says, 
Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. As baptized believers, we live in a world darkened by evil and sin. But we are given light by Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Here we ask in this prayer for the personal help of the Father through the Holy Ghost in order to live not as children of darkness, but rather as children of light. Indeed, we pray to be protected by the armor of light. When when Christ Jesus returns to earth in his second coming, he will dispel all shadows and darkness, clear up all doubts, chase away all sorrows, and cause the new dawn of the new day of the new age to appear. Then we shall cast off all our sleeping apparel and put on shining dress of the kingdom of God as we are raised to life immortal. Prayed each day during the four weeks of Advent, this collect is a real means of grace, whereby we rightly prepare to celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. Repetition is a gift of grace here. We repeat the prayer. Give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The church has historically regarded Advent as a time of penitence, as a kind of short Lent. Such may be based upon the words, cast away the works of darkness, which requires not only effort assisted by divine grace, but also self-examination in order that we might become aware of the sin and darkness in our own hearts, in our minds, and in our souls. Further, the theme of the second advent calls forth fasting and prayer from the people of God as they watch and pray for the return of the King of Kings. You see, when the time of the first advent Jerusalem and the people of Israel were at an all-time low. They were suppressed under, under the empire. They were crying out, waiting in anticipation. The temple had long been destroyed. Their very life was in pieces. And in the Bible, as with David, as with Israel, as with the church, whenever the people of God pray and are waiting for deliverance, They fast, they weep for their sins, they repent, and they wait. The theme of the second advent, therefore, calls forth fasting and prayer from the people of God as they watch and pray for his second coming. Use this time, beloved, to integrate your prayer with the scriptures. To cast off the instant gratification mentality that that poor boy is being permitted to cultivate and instead resound in the repetitive patterns of the scriptures and the prayers of the church. Do not let Christmas tide 
intrude into Advent. We are not of this world. This world is not our home. And it has corrupted the church's festivals. It has turned this beautiful festival into a time of perpetual feasting from even November. But for every feast, there is a fast and vice versa. A fast answers to a feast and a feast answers to a fast. When we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and we feast, it must come from a point of fasting. It is like the gospel message and salvation. We know that the church, in some instances, false teachers have corrupted the teaching of the gospel and given easy grace. They say, come to the Lord Jesus as you are. He will welcome you. He will love you. And you will experience his acceptance. And what they miss and they skip on purpose is the existence of sin and the necessity to repent and that there is unrighteousness so that there is righteousness. And so this corruption, this heresy of false grace, easy grace, without a price, the price of repentance, answers to feasting without fasting. All the feasts in the scriptures and in the history of the church were preceded by prostration, repentance, penitence, prayer, humility, meditation. And so do not rob yourself or your families of this necessary relationship, of this truth. Which, after all, as we said in the beginning, the scriptures are the very voice of God. And if his voice says, before you feast, you must fast, then let us heed. For what do we celebrate in salvation if there is no recognition of our death in sin? If there is no repentance? If there is no turning away? For easy grace would have us believe that we are already walking in the right direction and Jesus is just going to come alongside but there is no wickeder, no falser truth in life. The Bible calls us to turn, to turn away. And so before we feast, we recognize our lowest state, our wickedness. And so let us take this Advent as a wonderful opportunity to reintroduce ourselves to prayer. The gift of prayer, which has its duties, its responsibilities. No gift comes without duty. Even if you don't feel it, even if you don't, not feeling the vibe, even if you don't feel inspired, even if you feel that there's the most driest point spiritually in your whole life where you don't hear the voice of God. It comes with the obligation. Believe me and believe the scriptures. Cast yourselves upon the Lord and he is faithful and just. In the name of the Father, the 